Thank you. I was not I was not supposed to speak today. Corey Swanson was supposed to speak today, but he came into contact with someone with COVID. So you know, we found out on Friday, late Friday night, and we had to pull an audible and and make this happen. So I got practice the first service, so this should be even better. So um, I want to relate a relate a quick conversation I had with someone this morning. So, snow, huh? Yep. Yep. That was the end of the conversation. (laughs) This morning, I'm going to, as we're walking through this 40 days in the Word, we got to switch things up a little bit. So what we're going to do is I'm going to teach you how to study the Bible by using the devotional method. There are a number of different ways that we can study the Bible. This is one of them. As a matter of fact, in the curriculum, he lists 12 different ways. And last week, J.R. talked about the inspiration of Scripture and how you can trust the Bible of God's Word. And this time, we're going to get practical. Nuts and bolts, we're going to walk through, and we're going to walk through how to study the Bible together. So if I was preparing a message or if I was just studying myself, we're going to walk through it together. So... You can see here, what I did was I brought a little table up here. Now, I was going to sit at the table, but then it didn't really work for me. So I'm going to stand, and I got my, my little table, and I've got a bunch of stuff here. And I'm going to show you what I use to prepare to start studying the Bible. The first thing is I get a table and chair. Of course, I don't have my chair. I'm standing up here. But that's what I do. I get a table and chair. And I get my physical Bible, and I like the ESV version, the English Standard uh, version of the Bible. That's kind of my, that's, that's my go-to. I get a mechanical pencil, 0.5 lead, okay? You're sinning if you use anything else than that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. 0.5 lead. I use it for underlining and things. And then I get highlighters like this, okay? Now, going on here, I also use something called ESV.org, and it's a lot easier to highlight stuff and not make a big mess. So you can see here, this is what I did with Titus 3. I'm highlighting and pointing things out to myself, just kind of using that. And I prefer the actually electronic version of highlighting stuff. So um, I use day one journaling app for Mac and iOS. That's kind of my thing. It just keeps track. I can search things. I can go back with my notes. I do it electronically. I use my MacBook to do that. Um, You could use your phone, whatever computer you have, uh, tablet, whatever. And then I like mood setting things as I'm getting ready for my, my Bible study. Yes, enjoy coffee. Yes, I enjoy instrumental music. Sometimes a candle, indeed. So that's what I use to get ready for my Bible study. Now, the key to unlocking Bible study is this. Asking the right questions. Asking the right questions. Because the Bible is a supernatural book, and it's a mind that goes on forever, and we're invited to go into the mine and to mine the gold out of it. We're invited. God is inviting us to do that. And I know people that have studied over and over and over again. I know, I look around this room and I see people that have for decades and you go back to the same passage and you see things you've never seen before. And I see nodding heads. Romans 8, Psalm 1, the Beatitudes, going back and back again. I never noticed that. So, you cannot hit bottom when you're studying the scriptures. What's the difference between studying? What's what's good Bible say? This difference is you're taking notes. You're not just reading, 
you're taking notes, you're writing things down, things that you observe, things that you notice. Now, I do want to like kind of take a sidetrack here and ask this question. What is the purpose of asking questions? Does anybody know? That's it, right there. Thanks, John. The answer is to get answers. You can't just stay in the question-asking mode. The God of the universe invites us now and to move toward receiving answers from him through his word. Okay, look here in James. If any of you lacks wisdom, and of course I've highlighted this for you, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That's James 1, 5, and 6. If you ask wisdom, if you have questions, ask, and he's going to give without scolding you, shaming you, and it will be given to you. He's going to give you the answers. And that is Bible study. We're going to dive in. Okay, so we're going to use the devotional method, and I've kind of added a fifth step. There's four steps in this devotional, but I added a fifth one, and it's the first one. Okay, the first one is called supplication. You can see on the here, supplication, observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. We'll walk through each one of these things. What is supplication? What does God want to reveal to me? So before we start reading a text, before we dive into the Bible study, we're going to stop and ask, Lord, what do you want to show me? What do you want me to learn? The point of the Bible is not just to know and understand the text, but to know the author himself. We want to move toward the Lord, to grow close to him, and to let him change us for his glory. As we talked about last week in 2 Timothy, it says, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Number two, observation. What does it say? It's as simple as that. What am I reading? What do you notice? And then write it down. Well, what am I supposed to, what am I supposed to know? I don't know. Whatever you notice. I noticed this. Interesting. It piqued my interest. Write it down. Observation. What does it say? Number three, interpretation. What does it mean? The Bible means what it means, not what I superimpose over it, what it means. And how do you know what it means unless you look at the surrounding text, the context of what it's saying? I'll give you an example. The word pin, P-I-N, what does it mean? Define pin. Bowling pin, rolling pin. Pin the tail on the donkey. A little pin, a little, a little like a little needle, a pin. Did you know that there are 60 definitions of the word pin in the English language? So you can't just say, pin means this. What we really, when we read it, we mean that it's a wrestling pin. He pinned him to the floor, okay? So that is interpretation. What does it mean? Just one more example. Let's say I was writing a letter to Kylie. Kylie, you're pulling my leg. What does that mean? What does that mean, Kylie, when you, I say you're pulling my leg? 
You're joking. That's right. You're jo- I'm joking. We all know that because we have context. We've used this before. But I wrote this letter, and a thousand years from now, someone pulls it up and see- sees, Jeff is pu- Jeff says, you're pulling my leg. What could they possibly think that I meant? Maybe I'm grabbing and actually physically pulling. They would have to go back and look at the context. In Spanish, the actual term means you're pulling my hair, which I look around, and for some of you, that would be an impossibility. Okay? So you're pulling my leg. What does it mean? How, 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 does it, how are we interpreting it? The next one, correlation. What other verses explain it? You're comparing the verse with, or passage to other verses or passages in the Bible. The best commentary of the Bible that I know of is the Bible itself. You can use clear passages to help me in, to um, interpret unclear passages. Correlation, what other verses explain it, and then application, what am I going to do about it? After I studied it, what am I going to do about it? And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. So now what we're going to do is we're going to pull out a text. If you have your physical Bible, I want you to pull it out and go to Philippians 2. We're going to start in verse 19. Philippians 2, 19 through 30. If you have a phone, pull it out. I'm giving you permission to play on your phone today. Okay? Pull it out. We're going to look at it together. If you've got a pencil or a pen or you've got a note-taking app, feel free to take notes. Okay? We're going to do this together because the key, again, asking the right questions and writing them down. Writing down what I observe. Okay. But first, we're going to start with this first. We're going to start with the first category, supplication. We're going to invite God to show us what he wants to show us. Lord, what do you want to reveal to us today? We invite you into the study of your word that you gave us through your prophets and apostles that we'd be built up and edified, corrected, and trained in righteousness. Lord, we ask through your spirit that you would open our hearts and eyes in wisdom. We can understand the meaning of your revelation and reveal to us your heart and love, drawing us closer to you. Lord, convict us through Jesus to put your word and encouragement into work into our lives. In your son's name, amen. Now, normally what I would do is I would read through the book of Philippians to kind of give me a context but we don't really have time to do that, so I'm going to give you a back, some background. The book of Philippians. What is it? The Apostle Paul is in prison. He's in Rome. He's awaiting trial to go before Caesar, hoping to be released someday to go back to visit all the churches that he has started. So he's writing to a church in Macedonia, to a church in the city of Philippi. And these Christians have taken up an offering for Paul and they want to send it to him, or they sent it to him. And so he's writing back. And this book of Philippians is basically a thank you note. Thank you for sending the offering. And in the middle of the thank you note, he says this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. 
I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. He was near death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Basically, piling on, piling on. I'm already in prison. Now I'm going to find out that my friend is about to die. You know what that feels like. It is 2020. It's just piling on. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Make a mental note there. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I've never heard anyone ever preach or teach on this passage. Not once. As a matter of fact, if you're like me in the past, this is is a thing that you skip over. You're just kind of reading it, and you're like, well, it's Paul writing about two of his, his guys, and he's writing to this church, and he's basically sending a personal note, and it doesn't really apply to me. In fact, you might be thinking, why did God even put this in the Bible? You sent them to me. I'm going to send them back to you. You need to honor them when they get there. And so where's the doctrinal truth and encouragement. It doesn't sound very meaningful. It doesn't sound very meaty. And maybe you would even skip over it. But if you did that, you would be wrong because you didn't do the observation and the interpretation and the correlation that it takes from the Bible study. Because you know what we did? We just read it. That's all we did. And so at face value, it doesn't feel that meaty. So let's start. Let's start with observation. Just things that I've noticed, and we're going to walk through this together. Things that I noticed about this passage. Number one, Paul intended to send Timothy and Epaphroditus to Philippi. Pretty simple. Verse 19 and verse 25, he intends to send them. Second observation, Paul endorsed them, these two guys, as role models who deserve honor. So look at verse 20. I have no one like him. There's no one like him. This is basically, if you think about it, the greatest endorsement that anyone could ever give. Paul is the greatest disciple of Christ in the history of the world. And here he says about another man, there is no one like him. Can you imagine if Paul said that about you? What an honor. And then down in verse 29, he says about Paphroditus. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor men like him. So what he's saying is, whatever these guys are doing, you need to follow them and you need to honor them like him, just like him. There's nobody like him. Honor men like him. And so that makes me ask the question, why are they so special? What are they like? What makes them worthy of honor? What are they doing 
that's different than everybody else. Which brings me to observation three. Let's find out. Paul says five things about them. Number one, about Timothy. He is genuinely concerned or interested in you. Number two, about Timothy. He has proved himself. He has proven worthy. Number three, Epaphroditus. He's my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. Number four, Epaphroditus. He longs for all of you and he's distressed. Number five, Epaphroditus. He nearly died for the work of Christ. So, we observe these things. I point them out. What do they mean? So that's when we move on to interpretation. Okay? We move on to interpretation. This passage is extremely powerful because what it's doing is it's pointing out the five marks or characteristics of a godly person. Okay? The five marks of a godly man or woman. If you want God to use you, if you want God's power in your life, then we better study this passage. We want to build into our lives what Paul sees in the lives of these two men. Again, I have no one like him. Why? Why, why, is he, why is he so unique? Why is he so different? Because, or who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare? He is, takes genuine interest in who? You. Not himself, you. He is genuinely interested in you. Now, one of the ways that we can kind of figure out what he's saying or, or, or maybe get a different perspective is we can look at different translations of the Bible. There are dozens of translations of the Bible, and I know that many of you have a, have a different translation. NIV, NASB, uh, NKJV, et cetera, et cetera. Why do we have so many? That's because we can't really encapsulate from Greek, which this is written in, or Hebrew or Aramaic, into English in a complete word-for-word manner. It takes a little finagling in order to understand the heart of what they're saying. I'll give you an example. How many words in the English language do we have for the word love? One. Love. I love my wife. I love ice cream. I love it when you pick up after yourself. I love America. Does the word love mean the same in all of those contexts? No, they do not. There is a spectrum. I love my wife versus I love ice cream. You know what I meant. I love ice cream. Okay? You know what I meant. But in the Greek language, there are four words for love. They are eros, which is an erotic love, estergo, a strong love, phileo, a brotherly love, and agape, which is unconditional love. And by looking at the different translations, instead of just the word love, we can kind of like say, oh, it's a brotherly love is what he's referring to, and then use phrases in order to describe them. So for instance, here in the Phillips translation, this is what they're doing. Timothy genuinely cares for you while others only care about themselves. All the others seem to be wrapped up in their own affairs and do not really care for the business of Jesus Christ. And so this is what I'm pulling out of it. I'm interpreting it, this particular thing. 
but the first observation. The five characteristics of a godly person, they're unselfish. They're caring. They're compassionate. That person thinks about others before they think about themselves. They're not self-centered. And if there's ever a message that we needed in the church, in our culture today, it's that. Thinking about others before we think about ourselves. And everything in our culture screams the opposite. If you look at any advertising, it's all about me. What I deserve. What are my rights. What I want to look out for myself. And it's rare in this culture and in that culture, as Paul said, there is no one else like him. I have no one else. This man is other-focused. He is not self-focused. Number two, let's look at the second thing. Verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. That word proven, proven worth, it means tested, verified, checked out. This guy is faithful. He's dependable, reliable, consistent, a man of conviction. He is not wishy-washy, and that is unusual, and that's number two. He's dependable. He's proven. He's tested. He's verified. He's dependable. The second characteristic of a godly person is that they're dependable. Number three, let's go to verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send you to Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Let's take a look at those three metaphors right at the beginning. My brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. So what is he saying? This guy's a team player. He works with me. He's my brother. He's my fellow worker. He's my fellow soldier. He's cooperative. And that's interesting that what he says is that in the, how he's cooperative in the three areas of the Christian life. We are a family, we're a fellowship, and we're in a fight. Epaphroditus is going to go to bat for me. And Paul recognizes, the greatest, he's the greatest apostle that ever lived. He recognized, I need other people. I need relationship. We work together as a team. We need each other. And so, the second thing, or the third thing, is he's cooperative. One, unselfish, dependable. Three, cooperative, a godly person. Let's go on to number four. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Okay, so what's going on here? We got to do some backstory. So the church in Philippi hears that Paul's in jail, and they decide to send a love offering. How do they get it there in first century uh, Roman Empire? They drop it in the mail, and USPS delivers it. No. How do they get it there? You got to walk it. 800 miles from Macedonia to Italy. So, Who's going to deliver this? Who's going to deliver this gift of money? And Epaphroditus, who's one of the businessmen in the church, says, I'll do it. I'll do it. There's no cars. There's no planes. There's no buses. There's no trains. There's bandits on the way. Guess what? There's no hotels. There's not the wind gate that you can call ahead. 
okay? So as he's doing this, at great personal expense, living, leaving his business behind, he gets sick and he nearly dies. Delivering the offering that they gave to him, trusting that he's not going to take it for himself and he's going to get it there. So he gets sick and he almost dies. The church hears about it and they're distressed. They're upset. They're worried for him. And what's Epaphroditus' response to this? It's not, oh good, I'm glad they saw what I'm going through. It's, he has been distressed. He's distressed for their distress. He's worried because they're worried. He is concerned because they're concerned. He's worried about their emotional state. And so you know what? He's considerate. He's thinking about other people besides himself. Not just what people, he, not just pe- people say on the surface, but he's thinking about their emotional well-being, okay? Their emotions. You think what, how what you say and what you do and how it will f- affect other people. Are you considerate? And I confess, I confess, I see we got something on the screen there that's exciting too, so we'll see what that comes of that. But um, I, uh, I confess that when someone tells me that they're upset or something's going on in their life, my first reaction is, oh, get over it. I don't know if anybody, I confess, I'm sorry, Lord. Rub some dirt on it. This has come out of, this has come out of my mouth so many times. Figure it out. Guess what that's not? That's not considerate. A godly man is considerate. A godly woman is considerate. A godly man and woman holds their tongue, listening first and speaking second, to have a filter on their tongue and not be the opposite of considerate, which is rude. Number five, verse 30. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service of me. And there you go. Number five, he's courageous. He's fearless. He puts his own life in harm's way at the benefit of others, not just for himself. Because I know guys, I know women, that will risk their own life. They will climb mountains. They will scale walls. They will put their body in harm's way to do sports. They will put their business on the line in order to risk it all. But that's not the kind of courage we're talking about here. This courage is risking your life for others with no gain for yourself. That is a godly person. Think about it. The man risks his life to walk from Greece to Rome to take money to a man in prison, and he gets sick and almost dies, and yet he perseveres in spite of his pain. That's courageous. I've asked myself, what if my pastor, Jason, asked me to take a gift of money at personal risk, what if he asked me to walk 800 miles? Or what if he asked me to consider taking a month off of work? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. But a courageous man, a godly man, a godly woman puts others and puts, puts others' lives above their own. 
People before profits, courage before comfort and convenience, service and sacrifice before security. And the Greek term risked it all, risked, risked his all, he risked his life, it's a gambling term. The man gambled his life for the sake of Jesus. He was courageous, and that's the fifth mark of a godly person. Unselfish, dependable, cooperative, considerate, and courageous. So we have done supplication, observation. We have done interpretation, and we move to the fourth step, and that's correlation. What are the other verses that explain it? Is there anything else in the Bible that will help me understand this passage? Is there anything else in the Bible about the man named Timothy? Yes. Yes, there is. There's two books written, written to him from Paul. So if I want to know more about Timothy and what kind of a man that he was and why there's no one like him, I can go to the books of First and Second Timothy. What about Epaphroditus? Oh, indeed. It's, he's only mentioned one other time in the New Testament, and it's later on in the book of Philippians, two chapters later. And in it, we find out Paul tells us why they sent him. And so we could go read about it there. What else would I ask? Maybe I would want to find out more about these particular characteristics of a godly person. How would I find out more about those characteristics and what the Bible has to say about them? Well, there's a couple of different ways that you could do it. You could get one of these. This is a concordance. I have an, This is an NIV exhaustive concordance. So if I was going to use ESV, I would want an ESV one. If I was an NIV, uh, you would use an NIV one. And basically, it is a listing of every word in the Bible and where it is. Okay? So if I was interested in the word like courageous, or I wanted to find out uh, dependable or something along those lines, I would just grab it, look it up, and it would have the list of everywhere that word is listed in, this case, the NIV or the ESV. So you could use a concordance. There's also other ways of doing that. I, my wife knows that I don't actually use this that much because I have this. And there are tons of websites out there that help you search for just those kinds of words as well, cross-referencing them and even giving you Greek definitions or Hebrew definitions of those words. Websites like logos.com, biblegateway.com, biblestudytools.com, etc. Uh, I know that JR has used biblegateway.com sharing with you in the past. So finally, we have done the correlation comparing what the Bible is saying with what's going on in the passage that I'm studying. And we get to application. Let's go through these one more time. Supplication, what does God want to reveal to me? To observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? Correlation, what other verses explain it? And finally, application, what will I do about it? Now, this is a really important part because I want to let you know that you only believe the parts of the Bible that you actually do. It's not just enough to study the Bible, but you've got to carry it out what you learn in your life. Let's take a look at James 1.22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. You must do what you hear. 
how do I apply what I have learned about the five characteristics of a godly person? How do I apply how to honor such men? How do I do that? Okay, so the 40 days in the word give nine questions that you can ask to help you apply what you have learned in our Bible study. And they use the acronym SPACE PETS. SPACE PETS. So I will go through these, but what what we're going to do is we won't go through all of them in this particular passage, but I'll give you a couple of examples. Is there a sin to confess? Is there a promise to claim? An attitude to change? A command to obey? An example to follow? A prayer to pray? An error to avoid? A truth to believe? Something for which to praise God. So in this passage, Philippians 2, 19 through 30, is there a sin to confess? Maybe. Maybe, maybe I've, I've convicted of something. Is there a promise to claim? I'm not sure. It doesn't really stand out. Is there an attitude to change? Oh, yeah. I got to change my attitude. Is there a command to obey? Definitely. Honor such men. Is there an example to follow? Certainly. There's five characteristics of a godly person that I can use that example to follow. We'll just stop right there. So I've come up with two right off top right here. Honor such men and five God characteristics of a godly person. Okay? So, what should I do with that? So the first one, honor such men or women. Honor people that are godly. So how would I do that in my life? Men or women who exemplify these five characteristics of godliness out of the passage. Do you know any? I know lots. Maybe I would write them a note of encouragement, thanking them. Give them a gift card. Give them a call. Invite them over. Invite them out. Tell them how you feel. Thank them for standing up for the gospel and for sacrificing, for being selfish, unselfish. Do you know people like this? So I'm going to let you in on behind the scenes. So I had one day to put this together. And so last night, late last night, 8.30, that's late for me, I'm practicing. And I'm speaking these words. I'm speaking these words out loud. Honor such men as these. And I'm thinking, who do I know that I would want to honor? And of course, the first person that comes to my mind is my grandfather. He's going to be 103 in November. He is is one of the most godly men I know. Uh, I remember uh, as Matt was, I told Matt this between the services, I was so thankful that he played How Great Thou Art because I have memories of my grandfather standing in front of his church. He was an elder in his church with his big Bible, his big KJV Bible, singing How Great Thou Art, ready to go up to pray for communion and just being so proud and so thankful to know him. And he's been an inspiration in my life. And as I'm speaking these words, honor such men as these, I'm speaking them, my phone rings. And it's my mom. And I knew what it was. Jeff, your grandfather has died. And so I listened to her and she was feeling very encouraged because he was ready to go. He was ready to go with 
be with Jesus. She had just spent the previous hour reading scripture to him as he had requested her to do. And he gave his last breath and he died with my parents on both sides of his bed. And she was feeling kind of, she was feeling relieved. It's been a really hard couple of months. And um, so I shared the story with her and she cried happy tears. So I want to honor him this morning. Thank you, Lord, for my grandfather and for laying down a legacy that he gained from his forefathers, a legacy of faith, and that he has passed on to me as an example through my parents and to me. And God, I commit to you. I honor you. I will do my best to pass my faith on to my kids. Thank you for the legacy. I honor him this morning. Thank you for my grandfather, for Richard Bothman. Amen. Secondly, five characteristics of a godly person. What characteristics do you need to work on in your own life? What do I need to focus on to becoming a person just like this? Do I need to be more courageous for the cause of Christ? Do I need to be more considerate of others who don't think like me or maybe being a part of a team? I've been kind of a lone ranger. I'm kind of off on my own. I'm not willing to get involved with other people's lives. Maybe I need to take a risk and to step forward and to become a part of the family, to join the fight, to become part of the fellowship. Our world desperately needs to hear this message that comes out of Philippians 2, 9 through 30. It desperately needs godly men and women with characteristics like these. People who are unselfish, dependable, cooperative, considerate, and courageous. When I first read this passage, I thought, hmm, and maybe you did too. And you thought this passage had nothing to say. Let's stand. Lord, we know that we cannot be a godly man or woman without building our lives on you first. The rock of the Lord Jesus Christ and of your word. Lord, I want to thank you for the men and women in this church and how you have proven, how they've proven worthy of honor by caring about others more than themselves. God, I I want to honor them. Thank you, Lord, for them. And I pray that you would help every man and every woman and every child here exemplify the godly characteristics we learn about today. And I pray that you would give each of us a heart to love your word in order to know you and to love you and to submit to you, our Lord, our Master. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.